Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, Washington University law professor Kimberly Norwood will talk about biases and their impact on our lives, our lawmaking, and our decision-making. But first, national security expert Scott Bates is back from a trip to Amman, Jordan, where he was working with government ministries and elected officials on a project funded by USAID. Today, he stopped by to tell us what he saw and talk a bit about U.S. foreign policy. He's joined us in the past to talk about his trips to Iraq and the Middle East. Scott Bates, welcome back to Where We Live. That's great to be with you, John. Thank you. Well, you just got back from the Kingdom of Jordan, and maybe you can tell us first what you were doing there. Well, sure. Uh, John, I was working with uh, leaders and emerging leaders in Jordan, really focusing on uh, public engagement strategies. So that's members of parliament, people that want to run for parliament, uh, women leaders, tribal chiefs. And uh, this was all uh, via some of the assistance provided by USAID, which is U.S. government support, working directly with Jordanian leaders. And for your listeners, who I think they already know this, but Jordan's right on the front lines. If you're looking at a map of the Middle East, uh, one border is Syria, the other border is Iraq. And both of those border areas are controlled by ISIS right now. So uh, these folks are feeling the pressure every day, and I consider it a great honor to be able to work with them side by side. Before I ask about ISIS in that region and what it means to, to people of Jordan, what do those borders mean right now? Not much. Um, if you drive outside of the city of Amman on your way to the airport, and uh, from there it's only uh, 20, 30 miles to the borders, it's essentially desert. It's open territory. There are formal border crossings, but you know there's really not a lot of, if you're looking at Uh, some kind of border fence or any of that. There's none of that in that area. And uh, it's fairly fluid, as it has been for millennia uh, beforehand. So I would say your question is really interesting about the concept of borders themselves. And that is the real challenge in the Middle East, because uh, Iraq and Syria themselves are new constructs written drawn by European hands. Uh, These nation states are very fragile. And the identity of the people in them, if you ask them, who are you? The first thing won't be like here. Somebody would say, I'm an American. They don't say, I'm an Iraqi, I'm a Syrian, not necessarily. I'm a Muslim, I'm a Sunni and a Shia. I belong to this tribe. I'm from this region. And then maybe uh, you'll get uh, the nationality concept. So when you look at that region, you almost have to kind of erase the borders. You know, sitting in an office building in Tel Aviv about a year and a half ago, I was meeting with some Israeli strategic thinkers, and I really could sense that I was in the middle of a whirlwind of different tribes and uh, fluid forces in, in a very, uh, a very uh, complex region uh, and a kind of uh, eye of the storm um, sense that I got by being there. Th- that's what's so interesting to me, Scott, and we've talked about this before, but as, I, as I've talked to a number of people who've spent time in the Middle East and have studied what's happened just before and just after the various um, military incursions that the United States has had over there, So you're dealing with borders that were drawn by European hands some decades ago that never really truly defined the people or the places. But then when we went back in, we then tried to make definitions around, say, tribal areas. And we cut up an Iraq into Sunni, Shia, and Kurd. 
without the knowledge that, as you just said, that in a place like Jordan or, frankly, a place like Baghdad, Sunni and Shia have been living next to each other as neighbors for decades and centuries. And that got thrown out, too. And that's another one of these, if not European hands, Western hands, writing a very different current history than what the reality is. Well, that's right. And you can't unscramble the egg in a way. So you look at major cities like Baghdad or Beirut. And these are areas you can't kind of draw boundaries inside the city lines. People have been living alongside each other. One narrative that I think we do have to uh, look at, and I would suggest reject, I heard this in the Balkans 20 years ago. There was a great book called Balkan Ghosts that came out. Bill Clinton read it, read the book, and drew, I think, the exact wrong lessons from it. Uh, He said, oh, those people have been fighting forever, so we have to stay out of it. Well, that was the exact wrong recipe uh, for the Balkans, actually. The international community got together, uh, us along with the European Union, and put an end to genocides that were going on. And there's been relative peace and stability in the Balkans for 20 years. So you cannot look at a region. And people do that now. Oh, the Middle East have always been fighting. Sunni and Shia, they're always at each other's throats. We have to stay away. I would say we have to be cautious. We have to be humble. We have to um, understand that we don't have the answers. Um, But we cannot entirely disengage. And we cannot say, well, these are mysterious tribal peoples who are rationally angry and will always hate each other. It's not the case. Uh, And as as you're mentioning, uh, in uh, Jordan, for example, 8% of the population, Christian, been around since the days of Christ. Uh, you have every religion represented in United Arab Emirates, in Jordan, uh, all across the Middle East. So a very complex area uh, filled with uh, bright, intelligent people. We cannot write off an entire region uh, and characterize them as irrational or not worthy of our attention or engagement. As you work in Jordan on essentially democracy or government building, um, one thing I, I would want to ask is what you sense as the feeling of the people there about the conversation uh, surrounding Middle East countries and their role in, A, the Syrian refugee crisis, and B, whatever boots on the ground strategy might be needed to combat ISIS and or the Assad regime or whoever uh, we're trying to take on, because when we hear Uh, American politicians talk right now, often what we hear is, well, the Middle Eastern countries need to do something about this. They're the ones that need to step forward and take the Syrian refugees. They're the ones who need to actually engage in this fight. It shouldn't be us once again. What are they saying there in Jordan? Sure. So they're very polite in Jordan. Uh, They don't say a lot to me. uh, (laughs) We're not as polite here. Believe me, which they could, because in Jordan, Jordan's a country of 5 million people. 800,000 Syrian refugees are in Jordan right now. So... By extension, this would be as if we took in tens of millions of refugees. There are still 200,000 Iraqi refugees from the last 10 years that are in Jordan as well. And the Jordanians uh, don't complain. They take this on. uh, And uh, there's a lot of outside assistance, but it has a real impact on their society as well. Recall, too, that uh, Jordan lost uh, one of their pilots to ISIS who was put in a cage and burned alive. So uh, this really has affected the Jordanian public. They are Uh, very uh, anti-ISIS. They're very focused on combating uh, violent extremism. Uh, Even while I was there, uh, two policemen in a neighboring town outside of Amman were shot and killed by ISIS sympathizers. So this is a clear and present danger inside the kingdom of Jordan, already a place with a lot of cross pressures. And recall uh, those of us who have been around a long time uh, know that Jordan is hosting Palestinian refugees by the millions as well. Uh, So they roll with it, and uh, they don't complain too much, uh, but their very survival as a nation state 
is on the line in this current crisis. And uh, King Abdullah has said, you know, this is our fight. So when I turn around, when I'm in Amman and I hear some American voices, I was there uh, during the San Bernardino attack. And, um, you know, what I was seeing back from the United States was, well, why don't Muslims stand up and reject this kind of – well, they do. You know, King Abdullah has said over and over and others in the region have said this is our fight against this kind of extremism. Maybe that doesn't get play here, uh, but I know that that's the case uh, and that's that's the way uh, everybody I'm working with uh, uh, views it over there as well. And what does that fight look like on the ground in mm-hmm. Jordan as, as you say, as these borders essentially vanish and ISIS gets right up next to them? You know, a lot of it, uh, they're focused on um, uh, internal development. So a lot of it is economic, providing economic opportunity to the younger population. Right now, about 60 percent of the people in Jordan are under 25. So uh, these folks need a future. And if uh, their government isn't providing them with a voice and with uh, a viable uh, economic future, then there could be trouble. So they're very focused on trying to race against the clock. Providing opportunity for their own people. Another element is, you know, military force. So the uh, Gulf Cooperation uh, Council states it's basically uh, the Sunni powers in the Persian Gulf, along with uh, Jordan, uh, have been doing airstrikes uh, in uh, Iraq and uh, and some limited uh, in the Syrian area, uh, and they host a lot of Western military power as well, which you know doesn't come without a cost. I mean, there are internal critics of that kind of engagement. So they're in the fight with us. Um, and maybe we don't see it as visibly because they don't have an aircraft carrier. Um, but they have been doing that. And then internally, it's a police uh, effort in their states. I mean, this is about uh, getting good intelligence, uh, breaking up plots uh, everywhere you'd go, uh, or at least where I would go in Amman, uh, Jordan. Um, there's some, you know, some real security around, and there's a reason for it. Um, they've had bombings uh, 10 years before. Yeah, they had a series of bombings in hotels that actually turned the population against al-Qaeda 10 years ago, uh, just as ISIS's actions against the Jordanian pilot and others have turned the population against uh, the Islamic State as well. It is fair to say, though, that many of those who are fleeing from Syria right now do not see the greatest threat to their lives and to that region as actually ISIS. It may be equal to the Assad regime itself. What is the relationship to the, the kingdom of Jordan where you just were with the uh, the Assad regime, which kind of refuses to go away despite the enormous both public pressure and the, uh, the military strikes against it? Well, uh, because the Assad regime by its nature has uh, created this instability, I think that has to be remembered, that its oppression had led to uh, an uprising. And then, unfortunately, the Assad regime was essentially killing what would have been kind of moderate uh, rebels. Those folks died four years ago, quite a few of them. And the void has been filled by um, the Islamic State types. So I think uh, those in the region see that they're, this cannot be settled ultimately by uh, force of arms entirely. This has to be negotiated, talked through. Um, and the Assad regime, oddly, had been a kind of, if you're looking at its neighbors, a kind of, I won't say a force for stability, but let's just say they weren't causing problems with either Israel or Jordan. But longer term, it's as if there's a cancer in the region. So it was crumbling from within. And wherever there's that kind of lack of state control or authority, that opens the door for the rise of extremists. And that's exactly what's happened inside of Syria. But longer term, and by longer term, I'm hoping we're talking months, not years now. There has to be an a political accommodation. And now you have, of course, all regional powers and some global powers intervening in the region. 
um, that has to be sorted and a political solution has to be worked out, then I think that's the predicate for military action. That has to actually be the follow-up. There's no peace conference that's going to end this. There's a peace conference followed by, I would suggest, real targeted military action against IS to roll them back, and then probably a stability force, which should have uh, Muslim uh, boots on the ground in Syria. That ha- that's been done before in the Balkans uh, and even in uh, Lebanon. Where do those Muslim boots on the ground come from? I think we have to think creatively. So the uh, Gulf states don't have a lot of people, but they have a lot of resources. By that, I mean money and weaponry. However, there are other Muslim states that have a lot of people and a lot of trained, uh, capable uh, military units. I'm thinking Pakistan, Indonesia. Um, There are – Turkey has some, although there's some historic tension in the region. But I think as part of an international force, uh, it could be under the banner of the Arab League or it could be under the auspices of the uh, IOC, which is the International Islamic uh, Group that includes Shia nations too. Do, do, do we actually see Pakistan as, as a, a helpful player? You know, their military units, if we're talking about ground level guys, are capable. Um, you know, I, they have their own challenges internally, but they could essentially export some units. Uh, these are what I'm envisioning is something like you have, uh, you know, a peace agreement, much like the Dayton Peace Accord, which froze forces in place. Uh, I'm guessing that's what will happen in Syria. Assad will be given some face-saving way out. There have to be protections for the Alawite community, rights for the Sunnis who have been denied them so long, rights for the Kurds, a federalized state in Syria, something like that. Let's say that happens. Uh, then the international community is going to have to kind of pony up and pay for Uh, a force on the ground that can maintain basic order. Uh, That's what's been lacking inside of Syria. Uh, And once that's provided, then a society can rebuild itself. You say the international community. The international community includes uh, nations that have recently gotten involved in this conflict, including Russia. I mean, Mm -hmm. what's the complication of having Russia uh, engaging in airstrikes, having Russia essentially being part of this fight, but not necessarily, at least least to this point, being part of what we might see as a Western solution to the problem in Syria? So I think the Russians play a really important role in all of this because they're essentially, they and the Iranians are the only friends of the Assad regime. Uh, I think the Russians got into this game to be uh, use Assad for leverage. They have their own purposes. Um, so long as their interests are protected, they have a, a naval base and an air base in Syria. That doesn't have much bearing, frankly, on Western military interests. I, I couldn't care less if they maintain their bases there. I don't think Western planners are worried about that. But for Russian prestige, that's important. Uh, so they got into this fight partly for that, partly to be players at the table. Fine. You know, we all need to we need to have some leverage on Assad. I think the Russians can exercise that at a critical moment because without their help, Assad would be in big trouble. So let's hope that Russia plays that that important role. And I, I have a feeling that's what they're in the game for. We're talking with Scott Bates. He's former senior policy advisor for the U.S. House Homeland Security Committee. He's also senior advisor for the Truman National Security Project. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking more about security at home in this time of global terrorism and also how all this plays into the presidential race right now. This is where we live. 
This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about the Middle East and foreign policy as well as domestic security with Scott Bates. He's a former senior policy advisor for the U.S. House Homeland Security Committee. He's also president of Stonington Point Partners and a senior advisor for the Truman National Security Project. He's long been our international affairs expert here at where we live, and he's just getting back from Oman, Jordan. I want to talk in a moment about domestic terrorism and how ISIS has projected its influence here in the United States and also a bit about the presidential race, Scott. But but first, you were, as you said earlier, in Amman, Jordan, working on behalf of government building there uh, when the San Bernardino shootings happened. And around that time, there's a, an awful lot of rhetoric coming from the presidential campaign trail, uh, everything from Ted Cruz saying, and I think I'm quoting him right, about uh, uh, making glass that glows in the dark by, by bombing ISIS in such a ferocious way, talk about carpet bombing, even nuclear weaponry, uh, in this conversation. In Jordan, when you hear that, and the people who you were working with hear that, what do they think? So, you know, I really, I it was one of the first things I had to do was to address these, these outbursts from people like Donald Trump and uh, just quickly say up front, you know, these guys don't represent my country. Um, and hopefully, from a personal perspective, that won't be the case. Uh, because this is exactly the wrong approach uh, that is needed in this area. I'm talking about having to be um, targeted in our use of force, very specific, because the blowback can be tremendous if you do the wrong thing. And I think, boy, we don't have to look back that far in history to see that. I would direct your attention to 2003 in Iraq. So the law of unintended consequences still holds. So I, sure, I had to um, uh, address that up front, but I would always say, you know, you have your people that are kind of intemperate and so do we. Uh, and um, they're very gracious and kind of roll with it. I think uh, folks that I've worked with in the region, they're glad to see that the U.S. would have an active presence in the region that would care about the region, want to remain engaged. Um, what the thing that was very hard to deal with and very cutting were the comments about uh, barring all Muslims from entering the United States mm. uh, because this – plays into the rhetoric uh, that says that the West is at war against Islam. And it's, you know, it's interesting. I've gone on over 30 missions to the Middle East in the last decade. The words that come up once you're talking with people there over and over again are humiliation and domination when they're talking about their political history. And you don't have to look too far. I mean, for 400 years, the Arabs were put down by the Ottoman Turks. Then it was European domination. Then to their mind you know, three, four wars with Israel in which they were bested, and then the U.S. organizing coalitions. And while we toppled dictators, uh, and they were glad, most of them were glad we got that done, it's still a bit humiliating for somebody to come into your house and have their way. And that's the way it's seen. Uh, once proud people, um, then uh, humbled. This goes into the ISIS narrative and previously the al-Qaeda narrative. And they say, you know, uh, we're the only uh, pure ones of pure heart who can restore our honor and so forth. And it's a powerful narrative. It's I think we've seen that. It's been enduring since 2001 against a great force of arms by the West and a global coalition. So, you know, uh, working with folks there, um, I think that uh, it's unfortunate that I have to spend time uh, pushing back against the more um, ignorant voices here at home. Uh, but, you know, it's necessary. And I think it, it points out that we're far from perfect and we all have our struggles. The thing that we hear, and you would be in a better position than, than I would to to say that this is reality or not, 
is that indeed some of the rhetoric that we use, including trying to keep Muslims from coming to the United States, is used as a as a, an ISIS now, maybe in the past, Al Qaeda recruiting tool. Um, just to to push back on on that narrative, which I think seems to clearly be true, there is there is a sense that there are there are factions at work, especially ISIS, with with what they hope to achieve, at least their stated goal, of creating a state that's not just a terror network, but that actually um, it controls a certain amount of territory in a brand new state, a caliphate, as they call it. I, I guess I wonder if if this notion that we are feeding um, ISIS recruitment through our rhetoric is backed up in reality, given the really nefarious and horrible things that they seem to have in mind themselves. I mean, is it is it really about us mm-hmm. or if we changed our tune and backed out of the Middle East altogether and talked differently about Islam, would it really change anything about right. ISIS and, and what they're trying to do? No, make no mistake. The one or less than one percent of uh, people in the Islamic world who are radicalized uh, and go to the banner of ISIS and Al Qaeda, um, there's no changing their minds. These hardcore um, 20 to 30,000 fighters right now in the Islamic State, you're not changing their mind. The real battle is for the broader audience so that we don't play into the narrative that they're spinning so that, uh, you know, the unemployed young man in Amman, Jordan, looks around him and he says, well, I ask you're full of it because you've got nothing to offer me and you're chopping people's heads off and you say the West wants to dominate and humiliate us. But in fact, they're helping refugees inside of Jordan. They're taking them in uh, and they're helping, uh, you know, fight back. And so that's really you're right. It's not like if we just said ah, we're going to back away from the region and we're going to do all these mea culpas and would that make it all right? No, I expect that IS, that Al Qaeda, they would still try to hit the U.S. homeland. They would still try to hit American interests and attack our allies and and oppose our values at every turn because what we represent is antithetical to what they want to achieve. So no, there's no there's no conciliation that's possible. Uh, with that kind of enemy, but we absolutely have to be vigilant about not playing into the narrative that they are spouting. I want to talk for a moment about domestic uh, acts of terrorism and what we can do to guard against that here in the United States. But getting back to the refugee crisis, what is your sense of how Europe and how America has handled uh, this notion of tens of thousands, maybe millions of people fleeing uh, a terrible conflict and needing to find a place to call home? Sure. So I don't even have to look to where Europe is. I can look to Canada. Our neighbor to the north has just taken in you know, 10,000 Syrian refugees, which is, by the way, the total that we're talking about taking in. We're 10 times bigger than Canada. So they're stepping up on that issue. I think uh, with Europe, uh, you know, Chancellor Merkel has taken in 800,000 Syrians. Is there a risk, you know, that one out of 100,000 might be a bad apple? Yeah, of course. There's also, you know, the risk that people that are already here, as we have seen, uh, are deranged or subject to that kind of uh, lunatic philosophy. Uh, Here's what we have to ask ourselves. Are we being true to our values in a time of crisis? That's when your values matter. Are we going forward with courage and conviction and not reacting out of fear? I find it hard to believe that this country that in the last uh, couple generations defeated the Nazis, faced down the Soviets, went through the Great Depression. We're resilient. We always bounce back. And end of the day, this threat is real, but it's easily bested. 
and it'll be persistent, but it's something we can manage. And, uh, you know, we will destroy their capacity to inflict grave harm on this country. I think we're doing that as we speak. Uh, will there be incidents in the future? There may well be. I think we have to be prepared for those. But we don't give away our liberty and trade in our values. Uh, that's exactly the victory that they're looking for. Considering all of that, though, the, the threat that ISIS poses now, that I assume in some ways is similar to the threat that al-Qaeda posed, um, is that you will have two or maybe in this case now three radicalized individuals in a place in California that no one's paying any attention to who are going about their day-to-day lives and aren't being closely followed as terror suspects that can then unleash an enormous amount of damage in a small period of time and, more importantly, make us have to completely rethink our security systems once again, completely rethink how we are dealing with the threats of of terrorism here at home. I guess I'm wondering if, if there just is a worry that there's something new in the way that ISIS is recruiting and infiltrating homes and communities in America that we should be a bit more worried about than we are. Sure. Well, first of all, I'd I'd say that since 9-11, we've invested hundreds of billions of dollars in homeland security, about 40 billion a year over the last uh, 12 years. Uh, That has actually been working because we have not seen the spectacular attacks against the American homeland. We've been able to disrupt Uh, any kind of uh, big long-term planning that's led to that. So the kind of San Bernardino attack is really an admission of failure on the the part of IS and al-Qaeda. They have not been able to organize massive attacks on the scale that that we saw at 9-11. That's little comfort, obviously, to those of us who uh, feel a new kind of threat. I can say, uh, you know, um, I was in Boston a couple nights ago with uh, with our nine year old son and my wife uh, going to see you know the Nutcracker. So we're in a theater. What does he say to me? Could terrorists come in here? He watches the news periodically or hears from his friends. He knew about Paris, and I had to talk him through. Yeah, but and I'd, I said, look, the chances of that are like getting hit by lightning five times in a row. And I said, and here you saw the guys outside checking and so forth and. So unfortunately, we have to live with these kind of threats. I think it's important to take uh, necessary precautions and have a conversation with our sons and daughters, which we're doing now. And we also talk with our son about the importance of taking people in who are fleeing the likes of the Islamic State. So, you know, we live in such an interdependent, close world. And it sounds like a cliche, but, you know, the days of uh, Fortress America are, are over. And we get a lot more by being plugged into the world than we do by building a 20-foot wall. And by the way, those are always circumvented. So the way we best guarantee our security is close cooperation with friends and allies, conversations here at home, reaching out to friends and neighbors. uh, And will there be real attacks and real threats ongoing? Sure. But uh, the kind of spectacular events we saw at 9-11 – Hopefully, uh, those aren't on the agenda, and we can kind of manage uh, this kind of threat to the United States. I just want to ask you one last question, well, um, and bring it back to the start of our conversation. You just returned from from Jordan. This is one of many trips that you've taken to uh, the Middle East to work on democracy building and government building. When was the first time you did that? How, how long ago did you start that work? Uh, in 1999, I was in uh, Kosovo in Eastern Europe, and I worked with uh, – it was interesting. I First, they were rebel leaders, and uh, they converted to being political party leaders. And so I got to work with them uh, and uh, – 
and then they created their first parliament. And uh, I was able and honored to work with them then when I remember meeting uh, one fellow and he said, I'm a committee chairman. I've never been in a committee. I don't know what that is. And so I, I would bring in – it's just not me. It's yeah. you know U.S. government programs – bring in foreign leaders who have been there, done that. So Latvian members of parliament or I had a guy named – from the U.K. named George Osborne who now is chancellor of the Exchequer. Mm. He came in and talked about what a finance committee does. So it's peer-to-peer and it's not just Americans. It's us bringing talent and expertise from around the globe and saying you're not alone, you know. These are the struggles. So in Eastern Europe, it was about communist transition and post-war conflict. We brought in people from Northern Ireland to talk with, you know, Serbs and Albanians about uh, communal violence and how to overcome that legacy. And I've worked in Iraq uh, in particular with people, you know, colleagues that I worked with who are Kosovars, who are Bosnians, who could then, you know, one of my Bosnian colleagues, uh, you know, is missing a, a limb. And he's able to say, look, guys, I know. I know it's difficult. And, you know, I know what it's like when you have your neighbors committing violence against you. So what is the thing, after all these years of doing this, that you know now that Scott Bates 1999 just would be surprised by? The thing that you've really learned out of mm-hmm. all of this stuff? Sure. Um, well, the need for patience and humility. That in Kosovo, we had tremendous international resources at hand. The European Union was paying for 85 percent of the mission. The United Nations was engaged um, and the U.S. government as well. Uh, and and the U.S. was seen as a kind of savior of the uh, Kosovo-Albanian people. Even with all that leverage, uh, we achieved limited results. But as I like to say over there in Kosovo, it was an absolute you know, Rube Goldberg uh, contraption of international engagement and incredibly wasteful yet – you know, it ended a genocide, it created stability, and it's the best that we could do. Uh, and I think if you're looking at the Middle East, it's what I've learned absolutely is a need for humility and perseverance. And I, I look at people like Trump and others, and they don't have perseverance. They are as if petulant, reacting in a petulant fashion, wanting instant results. And, you know, that's not grit. That's not determination. That's not maturity. Uh, we can't afford that. And the consequences of actually creating policy from those so-called positions um, is really problematic. So I think we have to remain engaged, but we have to proceed from a place of real humility uh, and perseverance and, um, you know, dig down and uh, find the courage in ourselves. Uh, And that, that means us here at home. That means standing up to bigotry at home when we hear it. And when you hear fear, not mocking it. But addressing it in a forthright way and acknowledging fears of our neighbors, uh, but talking about what's important to all of us. Scott Bates is a former senior policy advisor for the U.S. House Homeland Security Committee. He's also a senior advisor for the Truman National Security Project, president of Stonington Point Partners, an international strategic communications firm, which is based right here in Connecticut. He was good enough to join us in our studios after a trip to Amman, Jordan, recently. Scott, good to talk to you once again. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, John. We have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a deeper look at the origin and the nature of implicit bias with Washington University law professor Kimberly Norwood. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's the 2015 finale for our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse. And what a year it's been from the unlikely return of Bridgeport Mayor Joe Gannam to ongoing discussions about a new casino. The news kept us on our toes. So we'll recap not only the week's news, but the year's news stories with our panel. You can join the conversation with some of the stories that mattered most to you coming up on tomorrow's Where We Live. 
Today, we're going to take a look at biases, including where they come from and how they affect important decision-making processes in schools, in law enforcement, in politics, and beyond. Here to talk more about this is Kimberly Norwood. She's a Washington University law professor and author of the forthcoming book, Ferguson's Fault Lines, The Race Quake That Rocked a Nation. She was recently in Hartford speaking with local leaders at the Legislative Office Building. Kimberly Norwood, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. Now, we obviously got a chance to talk at the state capitol, but there's so much more that I want to to get through. Let's start here, though. When we talk about bias, where do our biases come from? I mean, at what stage do we start to to actually notice differences in people and begin to develop bias? I have done some research in this area, and I do know that it seems as though we are born with biases. I mean, they certainly have tons of data to support that babies as young as six months, for example, notice skin color. And by 30 months, they have a preference for their own skin color over others. So that is a strong indication that that things are happening very early. I've read a ton of work saying that biases are really sort of designed to protect us. There's so much that is thrown at a person just walking down the street. And so our, in order for us to function, we can't digest every single thing before we make a decision. So our, our mind automatically categorizes stuff. If some car is coming down the street towards us really fast, we don't wonder and think about, well, maybe he's going to turn, maybe he'll stop. We naturally get out the way very quickly. So biases are, from what I understand, a part of our DNA. We cannot get rid of them, and they were actually designed to protect us, help us function. And so the question that we struggle with in society today, though, is how do we reduce negative biases? How do we make decisions in a more paced, thoughtful manner before we actually automatically let the bias control? Mm -hmm. Um, Because sometimes it is not helpful and it's actually harmful. Negative biases and and just uh, false biases, biases that are imposed upon us maybe over the course of years, we, we learn from growing up a certain way that certain people act a certain way, and then we then react years and years later, maybe unconsciously, to someone who, who we see that is different from us. And, and that can be, obviously, as we see over and over again in society, a very harmful thing. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I continue to think about, for example, George Zimmerman's testimony about Trayvon Martin, right? When he called the 911 operator, he said, there's a very suspicious-looking guy walking around here. And what is that based on? Nothing, actually, right? He just sees a black male with a hoodie, and automatically, this is a very suspicious guy, right? And then he says something to the effect, uh, I'm tired of these people always getting away with this. They always get away. And again, so he's projecting stuff that he has onto this particular individual who's walking down the street, and that ended up costing a life. When we make these projections in in everyday life, they thankfully aren't always ending in terrible tragedy for people. But as we've seen over and over again, when when police or authority figures make some of those same split-second 
uh, bias-based uh, decisions, it really can cost people uh, their life. Obviously, this is one of the things that you've been following quite closely over the course of your career in the last year and a half, but how important is it to teach some of these things about bias and what they really mean to people in authority and specifically people who are holding weapons every day? With police officers in particular, people say all the time police officers are under tremendous stress. They have to make split-second decisions, and I get that. I can't even imagine how difficult it is to be a police officer and to be in those shoes. But time and time again, with the advent of social media and video, we see police officers taking time, pausing, exercising discretion when it comes to white suspects and acting a lot quicker when it comes to black suspects. And I think that is because of the same thing that George Zimmerman believed, that somebody who has brown skin is automatically a threat. I cannot believe, for example, the six-hour wait for Deer in the Planned Parenthood case, and you compare that to the six seconds that Laquan McDonald was given, six hours versus six seconds. And so people say, well, you know, the guy surrendered. You know, they, what do you expect? My response to that is if Laquan McDonald had six hours, maybe he would have surrendered too, right? We give more time to people or the police give more time in many instances, not all, right? But in many instances, we see an exercise of discretion when it comes to white suspects that we don't see when it comes to black suspects. And so that is important. That's an important dialogue. That's an important thing that has to happen when we're training police officers in terms of how to respond, how to exercise discretion. We had an incident within the last several months here in Connecticut in which uh, a white University of Connecticut student got into a a profanity-laced tirade over his inability to get the lunch that he wanted. He wanted mac Ah, and cheese. And he was screaming at this poor guy uh, who was running the, the, the mess hall there. And people were standing around and watching. And this video, it goes on for nine minutes. And he's screaming and he's yelling. And eventually he's taken out But the interesting thing that was noted by myself and many, many other people who watched it was this was around the same time that we'd seen the video of the young girl getting dragged out of a a, a school classroom by a guard, by her hair, uh, a black girl. And you think to yourself, my goodness, if this young guy who'd already, you know, had incidents like this prior in his life at other schools had been African-American, I can only imagine that he would have been immediately surrounded by security guards and maybe others and treated much uh, worse than than this kid was. And you look at it and you say, well, okay, why does that happen? And what can we do about it? So the why does it happen gets back to our biases and the way everything seems to work in America right now. But the question is, what do we do about it? How do we make it so that that doesn't happen to the girl who gets dragged out uh, of the school, really in a two-strike situation or maybe a one-strike situation, and that maybe the, the, the white kid doesn't have quite so long a leash to be able to scream at people. You know, what what needs well, to change? It does have a long yeah, leash. Well, that's yeah, well, exactly. That's <laughs> yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, maybe, yeah. That, maybe that we shorten that leash on him a little bit and that we make sure that the, that well, the justice is the equal for leash, all. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know that I want to bring him closer to the South Carolina incident, right? Yeah, My preference exactly, would yeah. be that, A, police wouldn't be in schools, and, B, if you're going to have some sort of security in schools, that they need substantial training, proper training that includes 
these implicit bias issues. That includes cultural competency issues that are done on a regular, consistent basis so that we're not doing it on a one four-hour session and you check it off and it's done. This work is, like I love the phrase, this is a marathon, not a sprint. This is long-term hard stuff, and it keeps coming back to education, education, education. We have got to educate everybody on this. So we have to get to preschool kids This needs to be a part of our educational experience. We have to get to parents. We have got to retrain these police officers, these security guards. We have to retrain teachers. I don't know what teachers go through, right, to to become teachers. I don't know what you need to become certified. But cultural competency isn't in there. Implicit bias work isn't in there, and it needs to be in there because we have documented evidence throughout our country in all facets of life, mentoring, hiring, promotions, salaries, health care. We're seeing harmful implicit biases work against people. And so we this is like a massive deal, right? And so you look at this and you're like, oh, my God, this is too big. But we can't say, oh, my God, it's too big, because then you just sort of say, oh, well, and throw your hands up. Each one of us has to commit to this work. We need the folks, and this is true for corporate America. This is true for school districts. The superintendents, the the principals, the partners in law firms, the CEOs, the board members, all of those higher-ups must commit to this work because otherwise, if that's where our sort of leadership comes from, and if you don't see any commitment from leadership, then people sort of feel free to do whatever they want. In fact, we're seeing sort of another example of that in the Donald Trump case, right? We have this situation where Donald Trump is saying these things about Muslims, and and it's really giving people permission to act and say and do things that maybe they were not comfortable saying before. And so it's a Another example of that. Well, and that, that uh, point of political leadership is so important I mean, when, when the people who are either running for president or who hold a higher office either speak in the way that he's been speaking or don't speak sometimes when, when right. words need to be yeah. said. It, it does send a message. I guess I should ask you, I mean, there's been some criticism. I don't know if there's been enough criticism. That's maybe me editorializing a little bit about um, some of the statements that the president, President Obama, has made in the last year, year and a half that somehow many people might wonder if he could have said more strongly some of the things that you say on a daily basis about, here's what's really happening. Here are the biases that are out there in America right now, and we need to stop it. We need to shut it down. That maybe it needs to come from the top in a way that it frankly hasn't. When he when he decided I wasn't going to you know take an hour drive down to Baltimore when Baltimore was burning in the aftermath of Freddie Gray, I guess I'm just wondering your, your take on that. So I... Agree with you, right? I think that I would love to have seen President Obama say more about this racial backlash that we're seeing throughout our country. You know, I I can't defend his silence there, right? I do want to say, though, we know for a fact, and this is something that I'm assuming he struggles with on a daily basis, with him embracing his blackness and deciding because he is half white and half black that he is a black man, that has lots of people sort of always looking at him to see 
up. I knew it. See that? Uh, he, he's supporting those black people again, or he's doing this because of the, of the black people. You know, and so he's he's in this weird position where, um, in fact, I was just looking at something the other day. Some commentator was saying how ironic it'll be that if Hillary Clinton is elected as president, she might be a quote-unquote better black president than Obama. And it's because because of her whiteness, she can say things and deal with black issues in a way that a person with black skin can't. And that is absolutely true. There is a double standard. Uh, a last question for you. I know, I know you've got a book coming out, uh, Ferguson's Fault Lines, The Race Quake That Rocked the Nation. What do you think you and we have all learned since Ferguson, if indeed we've learned any big lesson out of out of this last year since since those events? I didn't learn anything. I don't think, and this may sound stereotypical, but what we saw happen in Ferguson, what we learned about how black and poor people are policed, these are stories that black people have been talking about for decades, hundreds of years, actually. So many, many, many of us didn't learn anything. This was confirming for us. This is the same old story. This is the same old story, right? Um, This time we have video in a lot of cases. We did not in the Michael Brown case, but we certainly have video in in other cases. And so so now you, you have groups of people saying, gosh, when did this start? Like, my God, this is, and we're saying, no, 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 this has been going on for decades and decades and decades. We've been talking about this. My father talked about this. My great, my grandfather talked about this. His father talked about this, right? This is not new, right? But because of social media, right? Because of video, because of, 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 of cameras, Everybody is now seeing this. So the world is learning for the first time, really. Oh, yeah, that does happen, right? Um, And so that is new for the world, but not necessarily for um, communities that have dealt with this for many decades. The thing that I worry about, though, is it is clear to me, and I don't think the world knows this or believes this yet, But it is clear to me that Ferguson is one tiny example of a whole lot of other Fergusons waiting to happen. And there are thousands of communities throughout the United States that are under the same kinds of pressure that the people in Ferguson were under and are under. Things have not changed for them. And it's, you know, one day there's going to be another explosion. And, And so I am hoping that we actually not only the world, not only see, wow, this actually does happen, but wow, this is happening. We need to do something. We've got to help people with housing, with health care, with jobs, education, right? There are all kinds of pieces that are contributing to this tension and stress and ultimate explosion if we don't act. And, and as you said earlier, though, too, just in, in more simple ways and everyday ways, Think about the biases that we have. Think about the ways in which we say things so that maybe when explosions happen or when difficult things happen, we have better reactions to them. We understand how to deal with them a little bit better because I think that's a big piece of it. When 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 things happen and then the media prints a story that then is is more inflammatory, it seems to set the whole cycle in motion again. And if we can at least learn a little something and change some small pieces of behavior, it might help might help a bit. I would like to make two comments yeah. to that. Um, 
in Baltimore, when people were out protesting, the media, there's a really nice comic uh, strip that went around social media that shows the cameraman of some media outlet, some TV show saying, um, the people are protesting for justice for Freddie Gray, and we need jobs, we need education. And the media, this this camera guy in the cartoon says, you got to burn something. Like, this isn't news, right? <laughs> and it, it really is a great example, right? Unless people are looting and acting crazy, it's not a story, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that they're marching for justice and jobs and education, that's irrelevant. Go burn something and then call me, talk to me, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is Baltimore, you know, is another great example because so many people are like, oh, my God, they're looting, they're destroying their communities. Uh, Our society destroyed the community, not the looting, right, because of white flight, because of the pulling out of businesses, because of the horrific education system, right? All kinds of pieces contributed to the destruction of that community long, long before that looting occurred. So we need to really look at this bigger picture and be honest and not just say, oh, my God, they blew up a store and, and that's look at those guys. That there, There's a lot of stuff behind that that we're not being honest about. And I dealt with this same thing a year after Michael Brown's death, you know. In, in fact, NPR uh, called me, and, and, and I did a short interview with them. And the guy who interviewed me said, people are, it's a year later, and people are out there protesting. What's up with that? Like, this is, it's a year later. And I said, yeah, it's a year later. And people are still protesting because guess what? Nothing has changed for those people, right? That people still are out of jobs or underemployed. The police are still ticketing like crazy, and the bail system is still in place, and bonds and cash bonds and uh, education system is still messed up. So you say it's a year later as if they should have grown and matured, right? No, the system that they live in is still the exact same. So they're still frustrated, and it could still explode again if something is not done. Hmm. The book that's coming out soon is Ferguson's Fault Lines, The Race Quake That Rocked a Nation. Uh, Kimberly Norwood is professor of law at Washington University School of Law, and she recently visited Hartford to speak at the Legislative Office Building. Professor Norwood, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been great. Our program is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski, and our intern is Nate Gagden. You can continue our conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.